Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. With us today is Rajiv Peshavria. He is the writer most recently of Open Source Leadership, Reinventing Management When There Is No More Business As Usual. That's the book that we're going to be talking about. Rajiv and I go way back. Rajiv and I knew each other back in his Goldman days when I was doing a lot of work with Goldman and then when he was at Morgan Stanley and we did work together. Uh, and it's just a delight to see the work that Rajiv has been doing since since our days when we played together. He's now the CEO of iCliff Leadership and Governance Center. It's a business leadership and strategy consultancy who works with Fortune 500 gov- uh, companies, government agencies, and nonprofit organizations globally. He was with Coca-Cola before he was with Goldman and with, uh, or actually, I think it was after Goldman and before Morgan, if I'm remembering your career correctly. Uh, And it's just a pleasure to have you with us. So thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast, Rajiv. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So um, Rajiv, I love the book and let's ground this conversation in the research that you did with 16,000 people in 28 countries. Can you describe sort of how you did the research? What were you looking for? Uh, and and then we'll talk about some of the things that you found. Sure. You know, um, typically how I describe this is if I had a room full of people, I asked them, raise your hand if you believe that just in the last five to seven years, the world in which we live has changed dramatically because of technology. And of course, everybody raises their hand, right? Then I follow up with a question, raise your hand this time if you believe management practice in large organizations has kept pace with that rapid pace of change. And of course, nobody raises their hand the second time. And that's what uh, this book is all about. How profoundly has technology changed the way we live and work and how far behind uh, traditional management practice is? So we went out to uh, 16,000 people in 28 countries with some very specific questions to uh, bring out the fact that, you know, management practice needs to change. So maybe give us the shorthand version of here are some of the ways that the world has changed that um, impact management practice and management practice hasn't been responsive to. Okay. So we live, so the the title open source leadership, right? So we live in the open source era. And what, what is the open source era? Well, first of all, everything is open. Everything is transparent. Right. Right. Second, speed is everything. So now when everything is transparent, everything is open and speed is everything. uh, You've got to innovate very, very quickly. Otherwise, you die. So, you know, the days of creating in-house incubators where you need a separate pass to go into that building and secretive world and take two years to come up with a new product. I think those days are over. You have to innovate. You have to innovate much faster. Right. Uh, and therefore, the biggest challenge is to find that innovation quickly and more frequently. So it's interesting because when I when I think about the various campuses that I've been on and I think about, you know, Apple, for example, um, you know, my sense is Apple, and maybe this is an example of what you're saying, Apple still operates in a very secretive way. There's lots of closed doors and, you know, private swipe cards that allow you to get in. And I think Amazon, you know, does the same. Like when you think about the big, the four big ones, right? I mean, I guess it's Amazon, Facebook, Google, 
and and Apple, they all still operate, you know, with a lot of faith in a very private kind of non-open source methodology. And I, I might argue it's served them very well. Like, so maybe you're saying it won't serve them well in the future. Or how do you how do you explain that discrepancy? Exactly the way you said it. It uh, it has served companies very well to be like that. Right. Absolutely, no question about that. Right. Uh, but as we as the open source era unfolds more, but today you have a computer, you have a good, uh, you know, internet connection, and everybody's everywhere. Right. So going forward, they're going to have to speed up that uh, that that uh, rate of innovation because otherwise somebody else will do it cheaper, better, faster. Right. Barriers of entry have gone pretty much. And and you know, I, let me take Apple's perspective for a second. Apple would say, "Well, we're going to innovate because we're going to get the best people, and we're going to have and now like now we're going to get the best people that we can find who are willing to live in Cupertino, right? Or maybe you know, I mean, that's sort of part of your argument." Um, but we're going to get the best people and we're going to, you know, if we actually really go open source, then then people are going to innovate past us faster because you've got a lot of good people out there who are going to take our ideas and move forward. And so, you know, we don't want to let out everything we know about Face ID because we want it to come out in the iPhone 10 before it comes out anywhere else, you know, in as uh, as effective a way as we can put it out. And so I think there's, you know, open, the open source era you could argue would drive companies to be even more secretive so that they don't put out their ideas in an environment that anybody could take them and run with. Yeah, you know, when it comes to business leadership, everything is about striking the right balance, isn't right. it? So I'm not, I'm not talking about absolutes here. Right. Uh, but the fact is that the world has changed and we, uh, we live and work incredibly differently compared to what we did before uh, you know, weapons of mass destructions were in everybody's pocket. Right. I'm talking uh, smartphone, uh, you know. Right, right. And that's the issue that we have to understand. So, so um, great. So, so what is open source leadership? So open source leadership then is about operating in the open source era, right? Um, now, coming back to, uh, to this, this question that you asked, you know, I got very curious about the fact that, you know, you buy any literature on leadership or pick up a, a reference, any literature on leadership, either online or in the bookstore, and chances are that it sings the praises of a democratic, all-inclusive kind of leadership, isn't it? And, and autocratic leadership is frowned upon. Uh, and yet you see people like Elon Musk, uh, Jeff Bezos, um, Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore, and they have rocked the history of the planet by doing just the opposite. They were all autocrats. So tell me a little more about, like, let's define autocrat. So an autocrat is somebody who, so the, way, the simplest way of thinking about it is my way or the highway. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I don't care. We're going to do it this way. Right. So uh, on the one hand, you have all the leadership literature that, that sings glories of, of the uh, democratic, all-inclusive, I love you all style of leadership. Yet you look at, the most successful leaders in business and politics, and they have changed the history of the world by doing the exact opposite. So I was curious as to which one of the two is true, all that literature or the reality and the names that I just mentioned. So this is where it was one of the few things that we asked 16,000 people, what do you think? Right. And uh, 28 countries, every single country overwhelmingly agreed that we needed in today's day and age of speed, you know, uh, autocratic leadership is required. There is no time to build consensus, and that's not going to get us anywhere. It's going to slow us down.
Right. We were incredibly surprised that there was no exception. All 28 countries returned the same day. You know, it sort of makes sense when you think about it, right, that with the amount of sort of anarchic approach to innovation, that you need a unifying principle and you need sort of a collective aligned focus that will bring everybody on the same page so that, you know, anarchy doesn't just beget more anarchy, but it actually results in, you know, a product or a service or some way of coming into the marketplace with organization. You bet. You bet. You see, leaders by definition uh, are dreamers of the future. Right. So if you've uh, dreamt up the future that doesn't exist right now, right, uh, others are not necessarily with you at that time because you've seen a picture of a better tomorrow that you want to build right. that others have seen. Now, the question is, are you going to wait until the last person uh, jumps onto the bandwagon and then gets started, or are you going to try and accelerate that pace? Right. Yeah. Right. It's great. Okay, so the you know autocratic leadership is what people are asking for and and i'm assuming that the survey didn't just talk to the leaders but it talked to a broad swath of swath of of people organizationally so it's like they're asking for their leaders to be more autocratic absolutely absolutely we were very disturbed by the data and we weren't sure whether it was right in the first place you know right. does that mean that we while we have idolized uh, democratic leadership Secretly, we've always wanted somebody to tell us what to do. Right. Is that what it is? So we asked the same question multiple times in different ways, and every time we got back the same result. And and is that is is what you're saying the fact, which is that secretly we want people to tell us what to do? Well, that's what it seems to suggest, right? right. Otherwise, why would everybody agree uh, so overwhelmingly right. about it? Yeah. So you talk about five keys to practicing autocratic leadership. Can you give listeners a sense of, you know, if you want to be a more autocratic leadership, what do you have to do? Uh, an autocratic leader, what do you have to do? So uh, before I answer that, uh, you see, uh, obviously saying that you need to be more autocratic sounds not right. And all kinds of notions come into the mind about, you know, dictatorship and, uh, you know, uh, all, all kinds of uh, negative connotations come to mind. But here is the beauty of the open source era. Leaders today are completely exposed. Every action, every word of theirs is out there in the open. Ordinary people, on the other hand, are, are, are more empowered than ever before in human history. Why? Because everybody has this in their pockets these days. And I can destroy or make somebody's reputation within minutes using this weapon of mass destruction. And just uh, to be clear, because we're, we're, also we're, also, we're video, but we're also audio, is that you're holding up an iPhone. A Sorry mobile device. Yes, exactly. Uh, a, a smartphone, right? So in, a, in an era where ordinary people are more empowered than ever before in human history and leaders are so exposed, exposed to the point of being naked, I think there is a built-in audit mechanism here. We have to take responsibility for our actions, right? Uh, so leaders in that sense uh, are, 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 are in the position where they have to be responsible for what they do. People, on the other hand, will not let you be an autocrat even if you want to be. So the data says you, you need to be autocratic to be successful, but ordinary people are so empowered they won't let you. So what does somebody do? Right. That is where the five keys of positive autocracy come in. And I, I won't go through all five of them, but uh, you know, let's take one for example. We say, uh, you, 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 so, so by the way, I call them naked autocrats because you are so exposed that you are uh, to the extent of being naked uh, and therefore a naked autocrat. 
and, and, and one of the keys is you, get, you master the dance of the naked autocrat. What does that mean? You be completely autocratic about your values and your purpose. Uh, the, the better future that you want to create in the world and with the certain amount of value. So be completely autocratic. Do not let others crush that vision. Um, and on the, at, the, at the same time, learn to be completely humble and respectful with people. So right. literally, you have to balance two opposites. So that's one of the keys. Yeah, because you actually have, you know, you've got these autocratic leaders like, you know, like Steve Jobs, who some people might say was abusive or what, you know, but, you know, you got, and, and you see that with a lot of autocratic leaders. You look at Uber, you actually start to hear a little bit of, you know, a little, a few murmurings of that of Elon Musk. And you, you, you know, there's a downside to this autocratic leadership, which is that the personality that tends to step into being an autocrat is also a personality, by the way, who innovates in, in an environment, you know, beyond other people's wildest dreams, who feels like the boundaries that normally contain most people don't apply to them, which is how they're able to, you know, send rockets into space and build the electric cars and, you know, create life-changing devices that, that people use. The, how do you, you know, and I guess maybe that's when you're talking about the respect piece. The downside is, the rules don't apply to me, which is how I'm able to be so successful because I break through the rules that other people say you can't break through. And then, you know, that's true also in terms of how I treat other human beings. You know, um, it's interesting you mentioned Steve Jobs. Uh, it's been 10 years since his passing almost, right? And I argue that if he was alive today and operating in the way that he operated, uh, people wouldn't allow him because people are much more empowered today than 10 years ago, thanks to technology. So he wasn't a good uh, master of the dance of the naked autocrat. You know, he was very, very particular about his purpose and his values, whatever they might be. But the other part, which is simultaneously being humble and respectful with people, he was not good at that. And I argue that if he was operating today, he would have trouble with that. Right. Whereas uh, somebody, somebody like a, um, uh, a Lee Kuan Yew of Singapore, he was a master of that. Right. right. He used to always say, look, if the answer was a no the first time, it should remain a no. But the people must be told politely. You absolutely lose nothing uh, with politeness. Right. So he's a champion of that. So you're saying you, you need to keep the same sort of confidence that you have as a leader and and marry that with some humility uh, which is a hard combination, you know, of confidence and humility. It's actually, I mean, I, I, I talk a fair amount about this combination because when we develop leaders, it feels like that's what we're trying to develop, which is sort of humility and confidence together. And I call it humble confidence, which is the same idea. Humble confidence, which is the same idea, right. Which is, you know, you're willing to break stuff, you know, break, break things, but you're, you're, um, you're still very respectful of people. Uh, and it's a hard combination to find in people. It is. It is. And so uh, following along with that, that, another of the five keys is give people freedom within a framework. Right. So every organization has a set of values on their uh, on, 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 in their hallways and uh, on their websites and everything. Right. Corporate values. Right. Uh, and yet every organization has a lot of rules and policies and procedures. And the larger the organization gets more rules, more policies, more procedures. Right. right. And. There comes a point in time that imagine a, a, a two by two quadrant, right? 
uh, a classic two by two matrix, uh, consultant matrix. So on the one axis, you have values. On the other hand, you have rules and policies. And before long, the rules and policies box becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and at the expense of everything else. And it becomes a bureaucracy. What if instead of running the company by rules, policies, and procedures, we ran the company by values and building a culture of values? I'll give you a, a quick example. You know, some, some months ago, we, we, we all noticed the, uh, the, the, the story of United Airlines dragging out Dr. Dow right. in a bloodied state from the aircraft uh, when he refused to give up his seat. Now, the first words that came out of the CEO's office, right, was my people did nothing wrong. They were following stated company procedure, remember? Right. Now, what if the employees of United had, had not followed stated company procedure, but had followed stated company values? The values tell them to beat somebody up and, 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 and knock him out of the plane like that. So if we build a culture based on values, you know, where do rules come from? They come from values anyway. The right. rules in, in today's day of speed get outdated before the ink dries on them, whereas values have a longer shelf life. So building... Uh, a culture based on values, giving freedom within the framework uh, is one of the keys as well. Talk to us about leadership energy and what you mean by that. So uh, in, in this book, I've, I've tried to paint a picture of how the world is changing, right? So on the one hand, technology is creating amazing opportunities uh, for things that are possible. On the other, so we call, there are two, two, two uh, main parts to the open source era, uh, Uber connectivity, which is creating amazing business models and uh, also obliterating amazing business models. The other theme of the open source era is uh, uh, Uber populated. We are 7.5 billion people going up to 10 billion people. I, I was talking about that with my wife uh, last night, just in terms of resources and the potential for calamity, not just earth calamity, but, but also like how we as human beings deal with other human beings when we're doubling in size in you know such a short period of time. But maybe that's a conversation for another time. But I wanted you to know that that part of your book, you know, got me and my my wife in an interesting conversation around that. And, and, and as as it should, you know, because uh, people are underestimating that aspect, the Uber populated. Right. Now everybody talks about the Asian century, because most of these people are going to be born in Asia. So there's a whole. Uh, slew of new consumers and new customers, and everybody wants to sell their cars and their wares to Asia. But, you know, get this, just one uh, uh, quick one. You know, uh, currently we are 7.5 people, a billion people. Uh -huh. Almost six out of the 7.5 billion have a mobile phone in their pocket, but only four and a half billion have access to a working toilet. <laughs> and most of these toiletless people are in Asia. Right. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, uh, the point is that whether you look at Uber population and the challenge, so the world today, the open source era has amazing opportunities ahead of us thanks to technology, but right. also amazing right. challenges. So leadership cannot be any more about showing up at work, pushing paper, giving commands, and getting things done. Leadership cannot be about just promoting shareholder value. Right. Those days are over. Leadership has to be about creating a better future. It has to be, so you know, we equate anybody in a position of uh, power as a leader. So somebody wins an election, we call them the leader of the country. Somebody gets from, uh, appointed CEO, we call them the leader of the company. But is leadership a title? Is it an adjective or is it a verb? 
What I'm trying to get at is when there are daunting challenges and exciting opportunities both ahead of us, leadership has to be a burning desire to create a better future. Right. And uh, your question was, what is leadership energy? Now, what happens when you say to people, I want to create a better future, come with me, you get nothing but resistance. Right. Active resistance, passive resistance, all kinds of resistance. And uh, we argue that the main ingredient for leadership is not a competency model. It's certainly not a best practice case study, uh, because last I checked some, uh, the dictionary, copying somebody else's behavior was an act of followership, not leadership. You need a tremendous amount of inner energy in order to not give up in the face of resistance and adversity. Right. And that's what we call leadership energy. And you know you know the little drink, five-hour energy, right? Which uh, they sell on the, on the highways. I'm not talking about five-hour energy. I am talking about 27-year energy. Right. Why 27 years? That is the amount of energy that Nelson Mandela had through 27 years of prison, and he still did not give up. Right. Uh, that is the kind of energy that Sochiro Honda had for 20 years of continuous failure before he was able to found uh, uh, the Honda Motor Company. Here's my question on that, because you really talk about leadership being developable. And yes. my question is, how do you develop that? Yes. So is, leader, is this kind of inner energy that goes on for 27 years or 20 years in the case of Honda, is this something uh, sort of genetic? Is this a gene? Is it sort of God-given? Or is it developable? Developable, uh, and and I I am in the camp that says it's very much developable. So long-lasting leadership energy. There are two primary sources and one secondary source. But let's talk about the two two primary ones. What do people like Gandhi and Mandela and Sochira Honda have in common? One, they are crystal clear about a set of values with which they will run their life, and those values they will never ever compromise, no matter what happens. Right. So when Mandela came out of prison and he said, we are going to forgive and we are going to reconcile, even his wife and his daughter left him, but he did not compromise his value. So it's about knowing values, not just knowing those values, but the ability to stand by them even when it hurts. Right. 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 That's first. second. They have a values based purpose in life. So every time they feel like giving up, they close their eyes and imagine that purpose and imagine that better future that energizes them again. Combination of values and purpose clarity gives you long-lasting energy. So it's really a question of what do you care most about and most deeply about that you're willing to trade off everything to make happen? It, well said. That is, in essence, leadership energy fueled by that, 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 that strong conviction in values and a values-based purpose uh, and if your purpose is greater than yourself, if your purpose is based on your values, you lose fear. Right. Any and advice what, you have of people for people as to how to discover or pinpoint or connect with those values? And that is the billion-dollar question, isn't it? There is no shortcut. The only way to discover values and convert those values into a values-based purpose is deep, honest reflection. Right. And, hence, we, we talk about a term called emotional integrity. You know, you've heard a lot about emotional intelligence, and I've got nothing against emotional intelligence. You know, if I say and speak everything that comes to my mind without paying any attention to your needs, that's not going to, or anybody else's, that's not going to hold me in good stead. So yes, I should worry about my emotions and other people's emotions and act smartly, intelligently. But what I'm talking about is emotional integrity, which is the courage to look in the mirror and admit to yourself without guilt, 
without using the societal lens, what I really want for myself. Right. And that's the basis of discovering values and purpose. Uh, because, you know, a lot of people, uh, so I'll give you a very interesting example. So we've been collecting data from hundreds of thousands of people. One of the questions we ask is this, what's the most important thing in your life? What do you care about the most, right? Can you guess anywhere in the world what's the majority answer? Um, so if, if you were to ask an audience of 100 people, right. what's the most important thing in your life, what would be the most frequently heard answer? I mean, I would think it has to do with relationships. No? In particular, family. Right. Yeah? So yeah. family is the most commonly given answer right. when we ask people anywhere in the world. And we've got, we've done this in over 100 countries now. Right. Yeah? But then you ask it, the question, how many people actually prioritize their family? Exactly. Right. Right. So when you when somebody says family, what I typically do is I pick up their diary and I flip through six months and, and I say, sorry, you just you just lied to me. So how do you say that? Because you failed the diary test. There's nothing in your diary that tells me that family is your number one priority. Right. So emotional integrity is 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 the courage to look in the mirror uh, and, and admit that what I really want for myself is this. And I don't care what society says, right. because if you can't make yourself happy. You can't make other people happy. Right. Rajiv, I've missed you. It's such a pleasure to, to talk with you, and it reminds me of conversations that we've had in the past. And I'm so happy that you uh, came on the podcast and that you wrote this book. The book is Open Source Leadership, Reinventing Management When There Is No More Business As Usual. It's Rajiv Pishavria. And, you know, if you've enjoyed this conversation, you'll enjoy the book. Rajiv is, you know, engaging as a writer, and, and I think your ideas are really um, important and groundbreaking and, and to really think about, you know, what I like about it is that we, you both have the organizational big picture, you know, 30,000 foot view. And, and we're also talking about how do you figure out what your values are, because that's what it really comes down to. And, and that combination of the individual and the organization and who we are as people and how do we lead is sort of critical, is, is uh, you know, the, maybe the most important thing for how we move forward. So thanks for highlighting that in your book and on this podcast. Thank you very much for having me. It was uh, great talking to you. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast. If you did, it would really help us if you subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. A common problem that I see in companies is a lot of busyness, a lot of hard work that fails to move the organization as a whole forward. That's the problem that we solve with our Big Arrow process. For more information about that or to access all of my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you, Claire Marshall, for producing this episode, and thank you for listening.